You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. What's going on, Chris? Let me ask you this. How was the weather in Chicago? Has it warmed up yet, brother? Uh, it's warming up today. Uh, you know, we had a cold, rainy Memorial Day weekend, uh, but actually. I'm quite happy that we did because uh, it tamped down on the violence in the city. Which well, that's is, definitely good. It's usually a pretty violent weekend. so. Well, that's good. We, we talked about, I think it was last week, how uh, Chicago was having trouble with that. Atlanta was having trouble with that. And anything that uh, helps to keep our people safe, we will take it. But I know you being uh, a brother who gets cold fairly quickly, but being in a cold city, I know you're. it's, it's welcome uh, to see the sun come out. Man. It, it is. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying, but I don't. I think I, I was supposed to be born in the South, Justin. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Well, well, let me tell you this. I, I'm sure you probably uh, assumed it was warm in in uh, Atlanta, and I'm gonna I'm gonna confirm that it is warm in Atlanta. It's sunny in Atlanta, but it's also sunny in my office, uh, <laughs> even more sunny in my office. And let me tell you why. Uh, I had a wonderful weekend when it comes to the NBA. Uh, my Nets, who I've been riding with for the last few months, uh, won. Uh, so, so our Nets uh, uh, got that W. Uh, the Clippers won, which was good, too. And the Atlanta Hawks won. But most importantly, most importantly of all, the Lakers lost. Uh, and so uh, always glad to see that. Never want to see somebody get hurt. So I do hope AD uh, uh, recovers and he can get back into this because I'm not into seeing people be hurt. But I am into seeing the Lakers lose. And I know we have some folks out there who are Lakers fans that listen to this, but you just don't have to get deal with it, man. That's, that's just the way it is. Did you catch any of the, the games, Chris? Actually, I did. Uh, it, was, it was a holiday weekend. I probably caught more of the games than I should have, but uh, I did get to see that Lakers loss um, and that Nets win. So, Well, good for you. Good I'm for you. I'm scouting for the Bulls, though. <laughs> scouting you you go <laughs> yeah work on that for me work on that well as usual folks uh grab your bible get your mind right and prepare to think not like a republican not like a democrat but like a christian because we've got some things to get into today and let's start with this chris with with the level of distrust americans have when it comes to the expert class and the mainstream media we get into pretty dangerous territory when we have to point out yet another massive failure on behalf of those two groups. But the experts and the media failed big time when it comes to an issue at the center of the covid crisis. Let's start here. Uh, there are two primary theories concerning the origin of covid-19. First, you have the natural emergence scenario. Uh, wherein some believe that the virus started in the wet markets in Wuhan, China, where they sell wild animals for meat. Um, that's that's basically what happened with the SARS epidemic in 2002, in which a bat virus spread from animals to people. OK, the other explanation was the lab leak scenario, which hypothesized that the virus escaped from a lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, it's important to note, Chris, that, that early on, there wasn't enough information to rule out either scenario, okay? But as science writer Nicholas Wade explains in an article in the Bulletin, a very good article in the Bulletin, and thank, we need to thank Wade for this article, but he says that early on, public and media perspectives were shaped in favor of the natural emergence scenario by strong statements from scientific groups. These statements were not at first examined as critically as they should have been. And here's one of the first statements. The first statement said this. It said, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories 
suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. This came from a group group of uh, virologists on February 19th, 2020, when it was far too soon for anyone to be sure what happened. Now, uh, Wade goes on to say, contrary to this le- to the letter writer's assertion, the idea that the virus might have escaped f- by a lab invoked accident was not a conspiracy. They're calling it a conspiracy, but it wasn't a conspiracy. It surely needed to be explored, not rejected out of hand. A defining mark of good scientists is that they go to great pains to distinguish what they know and what they don't know. By this criterion, the signatories of the letter were behaving as poor scientists. They were assuring the public of facts that they did not know for sure were true. It gets deeper. It later turns out, people, that the letter had been organized and drafted by Peter Daszak, who was the president of the Echo Health Alliance of New York. Daszak's organization funded coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If the virus had indeed escaped uh, from the research he funded, Dazak would have potentially been culpable. So now we see that he and others who are putting out this narrative and calling it a conspiracy to, to believe something else, they had a stake in assigning the blame. Later, another, uh, another letter would come out uh, and was released by a group, another group of uh, virologists supporting the natural emergence scenario, but it was full of holes. And generally, it went unquestioned. So Wade goes on to comment. He says this. He says, science is supposedly a self-correcting community of experts who constantly check each other's work. So why didn't other virologists point out the absurdly large holes in this letter? He says, Perhaps because in today's universities, speech can be very costly. Careers can be destroyed for stepping out of line. So what we're seeing, he's saying careers can be destroyed from stepping out of line and, and being a scientist and, and make asking the questions that you need to ask. So we're seeing that these statements were political statements. They weren't scientific statements, but they were parading as scientific statements and causing people to tell other people to just follow the science. Now, you see these political statements, but nevertheless, the mainstream media chose to run with the natural emergence scenario and basically called anyone who disagreed a Trump loving kook. I don't know if you remember remember when this these uh, conversations first started, but anyone who was saying anything about uh, the lab leak theory was was just summarily dismissed. And here's more reason for this failure. And I think it was covered very well by the hills rising. And that's where some of this comes from. The lab in Wuhan was actually conducting what they call gain of function research. And this is what gain of function research is. This is where scientists create viruses which are more powerful than those known in nature to create uh, cures for future diseases. Okay, of course, If one of these stronger viruses got out, it would be trouble. And that may be happened. What happened here? This is very risky research that was actually banned in America. But somehow they got some loop, some loopholes were created and the U.S. government was actually funding this kind of research at the Wuhan lab. Now, as we get deeper into this, people, I want to be very clear because this is important distinction. This is not to suggest that they were doing this research to hurt people or the whole plan of of doing this research was to hurt people. It seems like it was actually to help people. It was just very risky. And they were uh, funding Chinese labs with low or lower safety standards. But furthermore, the people in charge of uh, investigating the origin of uh, this virus were also responsible for funding the research. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. And check this out. Until Nicholas Wade dropped his piece, there hadn't been any in-depth investigative reporting on the lab leak hypothesis in the mainstream media. And he didn't drop his until a year later. It now looks like 
The lab leak scenario is much more likely than the natural emergence scenario. So here are the questions that we have to ask. Why did the media just run with the natural emergence scenario? Why did they say that it had been debunked when it hadn't been debunked? Because you have to understand, because of the reporting, this type of reporting and the position that they took, Facebook actually banned mention of the lab leak theory. That's right. They banned what is now the most likely explanation. They got trigger happy. Why didn't the media question the experts who obviously had an interest in making sure that the blame was pointed away from themselves? If we're not asking those questions, then shame on us. I think the answer is, in part, because Trump supported the lab leak scenario. And Senator Tom Cotton also pointed to it. Now, I would say that they did this for political reasons, not because they knew more than anybody else. But making sure that they looked as bad and as wrong as possible became an obsession for the media. Opposition-centered politics and tribalism seeped into our science and seeped into our investigative reporting during a pandemic. It actually became, some would say, it actually became racist to support the lab leak theory. That's what one New York Times writer said. It became racist to criticize China for their handling of the issue. Because being right or wrong is about which side people choose. Right. We, we determine what's right and what's wrong based on who's representing what, not based on the truth. And that's what that's what this is. That's where this brings us. And I know you've heard the say, saying that even sincerity is subject to proof. Well, this shows us that science is also subject to proof. This new information demonstrates that even when listening to science, we need to use our good sense and ask the tough questions. And the media did not ask the tough questions. They didn't say, hey, how can you say that this other thing is a conspiracy theory so early on without presenting proof that, you know, the other scenario is actually better? They didn't ask those questions. Those questions didn't serve the narrative. Opposition-centered politics and groupthink can be blamed for this disaster. And Chris, this is just as bad as a conspiracy theory. This is what supports the spread of conspiracy theories. And this is why many Americans don't trust the media and they don't trust the experts. It's a clear failure to me, man. But 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 speak into it, Chris. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to you, Justin, for uh, for laying out the facts uh, here. And I, I think that if we boil it down, uh, if you're listening to this uh, and, and Justin already talked about uh, uh the article, uh, the coverage from uh, rising on the hill. Um, but if you boil it down to that simple statement, I think just you just said it. Uh, you have a situation here where the people who were in charge of investigating what happened are the same people who had funded the research that was in question. So the folks who had funded and guided a certain activity, were then charged with investigating if that activity indeed contributed to this major global crisis. That doesn't take uh, advanced intellectual powers to understand that that's not appropriate. Uh, you don't ask the person who is uh, accused to investigate the matter. This is not even to say that the lab leak theory is what actually happened. We don't know. And thanks to this whole process, we may never know uh, as sure as we could have had we started looking into this sooner. Uh, but, but that is a major, major failure uh, on the part of the media and on the part of a lot of leaders, I mean, I, I would suggest to us that uh, that some of our leaders are, are culpable uh, in the same way, because that same group of folks who had uh, funded the research and who were charged with investigating uh, the issue were also guiding us through the pandemic in real time. Uh, 
Um, and th- that's just too much. And th- this is why when it comes to that idea of, you know, follow the science, listen to the scientists, I've been saying from the very beginning that we absolutely should listen to the scientists. Uh, but those who are in leadership have responsibility not to only listen to the scientist, uh, but to listen to a lot of people uh, who have different perspectives and then synthesize that uh, to to come to conclusions about how we operate and how we move forward. Uh, unfortunately, Justin, this, this is par for the course right now when it comes to media, uh, which is why I am such a huge advocate uh, for that media hygiene. And, you know, it puts a little bit more work on us as individuals. It does. Uh, but we have to take this up because you simply don't live in a world right now uh, where you can watch the evening news or pick up the national papers and, and really get to the bottom of what's going on. A lot of what is there is going to be spin and narrative and, uh, as we call it here, opposition-centered thinking where we quickly go all in uh, on whatever position seems to be the dominant position on our side. Uh, and, and that's a lot of what we get on television and that's a lot of what we get written, which is really unfortunate. But, you know, when, when I was uh, being trained as an organizer, we, we talked a lot about working in the world as it is to make it the world that it should be. And right now, that's just the reality of what we have available to us in a lot of media. Uh, and so we have to consume, you know, we have to look at a lot of different things. We have to do our own independent research, um, you know, not to be self-promoting, but you have to check out podcasts like this one and others um, to make sure that you're getting a wide perspective. Yeah, I mean, you got to do it. And, and I hope the listeners, I hope the audience is understanding where the media got this wrong. Right. The media is supposed to be objective. The media is supposed to be probing the media, whether it's the king, a scientist, an expert or anything else. They're not just supposed to take anybody's word for it. They're supposed to probe. So it's not to say that they're supposed to know better than the scientists who made these initial statements. It's to say, wait, if I'm a, a, a science reporter and you're telling me in February of 2020 that, you know, another explanation is a conspiracy theory, but you can't give me a real reason why yours is for sure. Then I got to check that out. If I'm a if I'm a reporter doing my job and you're connect and you're not only doing the investigation, but you're responsible for some of this research. Somebody should have asked the question about that. Right. If 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 I'm if you have any reason or conflict of interest where you would try to be shifting the blame, that's why we need reporters who do these investigations. And that's where they fell short. But again, we have this opposition centered politics and opposition centered public witness where it's just about choosing the right side. So because Trump said something racist about Chinese, which we should push back against, and I'm glad people did and continue to push back against that, that doesn't mean you need to go against everything else he says. Whether he did it with the right motive or the wrong motive, you still have to look at the facts. You don't just base it on who said what. And then when it comes to science, I mean, this this is very important how we view science because the simplicity of just follow the science as if even good science tells tells a politician or a leader exactly what to do. Even good science doesn't do that. But sometimes we have bad science. And so for Christians, I think the important thing to remember here is science is important. Science is a gift from God, in my opinion. Christians shouldn't be against or afraid of science. But science is also conducted by broken people who have broken interests and who have agendas. It is not something to put your faith in like we saw the intelligentsia and the elite putting their faith in during the covid crisis and not wanting to ask any questions and getting mad at people that ask questions and banning people on platforms. Who talk about something that hasn't been disproven. Saying something is has been debunked when it hasn't been debunked. That's that's where we went wrong here. And I'll let you carry us out, Chris. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just important to remind people that this conversation that we're having right now, uh, Justin, is not uh, an exercise in, in you know, theory and, and just, you know, political theory. Uh, it has real implications. You talked about uh, gain-of-function research. And the big reason to look into this question of with, if, if gain-of-function research actually contributed to the COVID-19 crisis is because if it did, we should really think about how we're doing it, how we're funding it. Uh, when you look at this, this is a kind of research that was banned uh, in the United States, um, you know, which is part of the reason why we started funding uh, folks to do it in China. Uh, is certainly not something that there is this broad consensus uh, in the scientific community that it is okay and that it is worth it. Um, I'm not a part of the scientific community, so I, I don't want to hold out a strong opinion on that question. But certainly, if this type of research contributed to uh, the, you know, the last year that we just experienced as a global community, um, we should certainly be looking into uh, if it's something that's actually worth it and how do we regulate it in a way that makes sure that we don't uh, have another outbreak like this. Um, and so this is not just about who's right, who's wrong. Uh, this is about how do we keep uh, Americans and really, in this case, the, the world uh, safe. And so it's, it's really, really important, practical uh, that we look into this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of, just another reason to lament the uh, the sort of failure of, of the the broader media community. And, and I'll, I'll be uh, careful to say, it, it, anytime we say this, we, we're certainly not saying that every single person in the media uh, has behaved the way that we're talking about. There's certainly uh, exceptions. Um, but broad stroke is a big failure. And uh, it, it could have real consequences for people. So Let's just keep looking into this stuff, um, thinking about it and talking about it when we see stuff come over, uh, you know, so quickly defined, cornered and decided in the media without uh, a real great level of scrutiny. Yep. Look, the facts have to matter and we have to stop forming opinions when we don't have the facts. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, so we're just talking about the origin of COVID-19. Um, and we see that basically the origin of COVID-19, that what should have been a debate, what should have been you know, part of a, a larger discourse, really became part of a culture war and things started getting banned and all this stuff, even though we didn't really know what the truth was. Uh, we saw a situation where progressives believed the experts and the and conservatives distrusted the experts. Uh, none of us really had enough information to know for sure. But as always, that didn't stop us from engaging like we did, which brings us to our next topic. Uh, we see how the culture war can cause us to dismiss and to ban the facts and conversations about the facts. In Politico, Zach Stanton uh, did an interview with James Davison in an article entitled How the Culture War Could Break Democracy. In 1991, Davison, who was a sociologist, popularized the term culture war based on how conservatives and progressives were battling over issues like gay rights, abortion and religion in schools. Uh, Davis said that he did it initially to kind of identify this problem, hoping that Americans would be able to correct it once it had been identified. But David now believes that what happened was Americans doubled down on the culture war. And it's become a winner take all conflict over the future of the country. And it's grown a little bit. Now, the culture war, the new culture war includes race and things like uh, class culture. Davidson says in the interview that democracy really is an agreement that we won't kill each other over our disagreements. Uh, but now we're seeing justifications for violence. And so I know there was a report not too long ago saying that 
a, a good number of Americans, a critical mass of Americans were saying that different these differences in opinion did justify violence. And so we have to be aware of that. Uh, Davison went on to say that the culture wars, that culture wars always precede shooting wars. They don't necessarily lead to shooting wars, but when there is a shooting war, a culture war preceded it because culture wars provide justification for violence. And it's important to understand the difference between what we would see as a political issue and what we would see as a culture war issue. And the difference is that one can compromise on a political matter. One cannot compromise when it comes to absolute truth. And that's the difference here. And that's this war that we see between conservatives and progressives. And the interesting thing that he said about this, which I thought was some really deep history, is initially this culture war was really just among white America. It was white America going back and forth. But now we see that white America has kind of drafted other groups into this conversation using race and other things. And now it's this larger culture war that involves people that are outside the two initial groups who are going at it. But here's the questions, Chris, I think here's the question that I think Christians need to ask when it comes to culture war. Where should the Christians stand on these culture war matters or on culture war back on the culture war back and forth in general. And here's my attempt to answer that to some extent. In my opinion, Chris, Christians shouldn't compromise what they believe to be the truth. I don't think that's, I don't think what we believe to be the truth should be compromised. In other words, we can't say something is true that isn't true just to get along with others. However, We must have a perspective that says politics isn't an ultimate thing. That the culture isn't an ultimate thing, which changes doesn't mean we don't care about those two things. But when we know they're not ultimate, it changes how we respond to those who profess what we believe to be false. Right. It doesn't change what you think. It doesn't change your values, but it does change your approach and the conclusion that you draw from those disagreements. We need to advocate for what's right. Nobody's saying don't say anything about it. We need to advocate for what's right while respecting our neighbor's right to be wrong and realizing that we've been wrong in the past and we'll probably be wrong again, especially if we approach things in the way that we approach this culture war. So let me give you an example, Chris. For instance, I truly believe that biological men playing against women in sports is absolutely absurd. To me, it is an obvious, it's an obviously preposterous attempt to rationalize an ideology that's plainly wrong and clearly violates God's design. I I genuinely believe that you have to be completely indoctrinated to think that a 180 pound man should be playing any sport with a woman. And I'll continue to say that uh, 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 in the, in, in the public discourse that said, I still have to have a real and sincere concern and compassion for my neighbors who disagree or for who find themselves feeling differently. I still have to, in a real way, not just in words, but self-sacrificially protect them from violence and all indignities. This doesn't mean that the policies that further that standpoint aren't a big deal. I think they are a big deal. I think they can hurt women and I think they hurt the culture in general. But as a Christian, I know that it's not an ultimate thing. And that doesn't and that it doesn't erase the dignity of others or justify treating them with contempt or treating them violently. And this is really why, and you know this, Chris, this is why the Ann campaign has explicitly pushed back against the winner take all narratives in these culture war conversations. It's part of the reason that we're pres- we're presently uh, calling for federal legislation that protects religious liberty and protects LGBT rights. Because we're saying it's not winner take all. That we all have dignity and we need to try a lot harder to find ways to live together without resorting to this zero sum game. And I also have to understand that when I have 
in this conversation, when we have LGBT folks who are having this winner take all mentality, I may want to consider that partially that winner take all mentality came from a lot of Christians. But if you're just about the culture war and you're just about what side you're going to take and which side you think is right or wrong, you miss the compassion, you miss the concern and you miss the human dignity. Chris, any thoughts on this culture war article? So this article uh, is so there's so much in it. Um, it is from the guy who kind of popularized the term. Uh, there's so much perspective that I'm sure we won't have time to get to uh, here. I would strongly encourage folks uh, to read it um, because it, it really begins to ask uh, some really, really uh, important questions about what we are going to do uh, in our democracy uh, and really analyzes at a um, at a fairly thoughtful level, the impact that the current uh, culture war uh, is having uh, in our democracy. Uh, there's a, a portion where he's talking about this, um, this reality where you see people even voting against their own interest, uh, at least their own economic interest, uh, based on the lines that have been drawn uh, in the culture war. And that's certainly something that we're experiencing uh, uh, in the democracy. And, and, and he goes forward with that quote uh, that, that I think you just highlighted, Justin, about democracy being an agreement that we will not kill each other because of our differences. Um, when I read the article, I see uh, a huge opportunity uh, for us as a society and us as a as a church. Um, there's a, a conversation uh, in the article uh, about how this this culture war has uh, perpetuated in in the issue of uh, race and, and race relations. Um, he talks about the uh, the Civil War and the civil rights movement. Uh, as being essentially uh, attempts to build a cultural consensus through political consensus. And ultimately, those efforts, uh, at at least in the estimation uh, of the article, were unsuccessful uh, to to put to bed a cultural issue through a political consensus. Here's the opportunity, Justin, that I see. I think that there's an opportunity here uh, in the middle of this crisis, uh, and, and there is certainly a crisis. I, I, that's why I love this article so much, because it really brings to light something that I do think uh, brings our democracy to a moment of crisis. Uh, but I think that every crisis brings with it a set of opportunities. And one of the opportunities that I think is here is we may, for the first time, because of this consistent work that has been done, uh, both in building political consensus and in building cultural consensus, which is really, really difficult. And it, it, it costs a lot of really hard conversations and a lot of time. But I think we have been invested um, in, that, in that project for a long time uh, in this country. And we've had a lot of tremendous failures. We've had a lot of tremendous successes, but we've been invested in it. And I think we may be at a point uh, Justin, for the first time, there may be an opportunity to build a political consensus through a cultural consensus. Uh, and, mm. and, and what I mean is that this culture war is consuming so much of our politics, so much of our media, so much of our political discourse and public discourse. But I don't know that it's consumed everybody's life. Um I still maintain that the most intense fighting in the culture war is between the most extreme members of either ideological tribe. And that there's so many people in this country who basically choose apathy because they recognize that they actually do not fit into either one of the extremes. I think there's an opportunity to organize the middle, to mobilize the moderate, 
to build coalition among folks who just culturally do not identify with either one of the extremes. And it is because of a feeling of compassion and conviction that a lot of people in this country have. A majority? I don't know, maybe, but certainly a lot. Uh, and Justin, you can, you can say amen to this and, and confirm it, but when we go around and talk about our compassion conviction framework, a lot of times it's not the work of convincing people. A lot of times it's almost as if we've given language to something that was happening inside of the, the hearts and minds of people uh, for a long time. And this opportunity is going to take some work. Uh, you know, we need the heroes uh who are going to uh, do the work, have the conversations, uh, you know, set aside a lot of the loudness that's in media uh, and on TV and everybody's writing about it and so many folks are tweeting about it and it seems like it's dominating everything. Uh, but if we get in our communities, if we get in our churches uh, and start talking to people, we begin to realize that most of the loud people, do, are not giving voice to what's in the heart of a whole lot of folks. I don't want to get ahead of myself and say a majority, but there is there is an an uh, operable segment of the society that is not in either one of these sort of culture war camps. Um, many of them believers, like you and me, Justin, who look in the Bible and see clearly. Uh, the conviction of the scriptures and there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong and we know what we believe, but we look in that same biblical text and find in it no reason to injure, oppress, or otherwise harm folks who do not believe what we believe. And if anything, a call in those texts uh, to ensure that those folks uh, do not come under that kind of uh, hurtful treatment. Um, and it is rooted, again, for many of us, and I, I don't think that everybody who falls into this political camp uh, is, a, is a believer, but for the believer is rooted in this idea that our identity and our existence and our safety and our security uh, is not anchored in the politics of the day or the cultural thought and opinions of the day. We got identity that's hidden in Christ. Um, we have uh, uh, a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory uh, that comes from heaven. And we have a history in the church um, that shows us that, that we can and, and, and will persist and maintain because the Holy Spirit is sustaining us. Uh, and a lot of folks who are looking at cultural issues, the one thing that I don't hear talked about a lot uh, and, and I'll be quiet after this, but but folks do not uh, fully grasp um, something that, that I know I've seen uh, in a lot of different places uh, in this country, which is the work, the deep spiritual work that has been happening uh, in, in so many different communities and uh, churches all over the place uh, that's actually bringing folks together, not making us agree on every single issue, but find a different way of dealing with our uh, differences. And and so when I look at this cultural issue, it's a, a major crisis, but it bears with it this tremendous opportunity. Uh, but what it will take to, to leverage that opportunity uh, is for folks who do not fit on either uh, extreme to actually get involved uh, and not choose apathy and disengagement, but actually become a a vocal, organized, active middle uh, to bring a sort of peace that maybe we've we've not ever had an opportunity to build uh, in this country. Yeah, it seems to me, Chris, that you're pointing out what uh, hidden tribes called the exhausted majority, uh, the folks who don't speak up, don't get active, just because they're tired. <laughs> they're, they're tired of all the, the the loudness. They're tired of nothing getting done. And so they're like, look, I got other things in my life I need to be paying attention to. I don't have time for this. Mm -hmm. And the question when you're talking about these folks who aren't on the extremes is 
how do you get them excited? You know, pe- people don't it's hard to get people excited. Someone once said about moderation. Um, and it's very easy to get people excited about these extreme conversations. Right. Because mostly when what people are folks on the stream are getting excited about is they feel there's a threat of extinction. Right. There's this existential threat that everybody's afraid of. And when you think it's over, you're going to fight. You know, somebody's back. Everybody feels like they're backed into the corner and they're fighting for their life. And so that's actually where kind of this excitement, if that's where you want to call it, comes from. But when somebody's not using those tactics, how do you get people excited? And I think people have to get uh, at least active when it comes to human dignity. I think they have to get, get at least active when it comes to the truth, when it comes to protecting others. Mm-hmm. And until we get leaders who are willing to do the hard work, the easy work is just to go along with what's provocative and what's getting everybody up in arms. The hard work is to be artful and to be articulate about things that aren't so obvious or aren't so scary initially. And to get people excited about that, that is is really the work that the AND campaign has has trying to be has tried to do. Not that there aren't any threats out there, but that is not just about kind of pointing out the threat. It's about the things that you should do, whether there's a threat or not. Yeah. Right. You should treat your neighbor a certain way, whether there's a threat or not. You should protect human dignity, whether there's a threat or not. You should promote human flourishing, whether there's a threat or not. And do we have the leadership and the communicators? To get that across without having to make it an existential threat or make it ultimate. And that's what I think that Christians have to avoid. I'll let you have the last word, Chris. Yeah, I think that, that you're hitting on something uh, so good, uh, Justin. I, I wrote a, an article about a year ago um, talking about five myths about political moderates. Uh, and and I think that, that, that piece is actually germane here because I was talking about the idea that we as you know political moderates you're not moderate because you don't care about anything right uh you're moderate because the things that you care about don't fit easily into one box or the other um and so to to really get engaged as moderates i think that uh is about getting engaged issue by issue um cuz folks do animate and, and get excited about issues but but the the broad stroke is the one that i think you brought up uh, Justin, I think it's why the opportunity uh, is here, because the threat uh, to people, like real practical threat, like I'm not talking about the fake uh, existential threat that culture war types on either side of the aisle uh, or the ideological spectrum want to put forward. I'm talking about real threats uh, that can actually hurt real people when folks are coming under attack because of their, uh, you know, landing on one side or the other of the culture issue. There are folks who are, are under threat to lose their jobs. There are folks who are under threat to uh, to be economically uh, disempowered or continue to be economically oppressed. Uh, and the the movement of the middle might just be a movement to protect folks on, on either side. Uh, and I think that there are enough folks who have enough compassion uh, and can be excited around this idea of of protecting folks from harm, uh, because this this culture war has advanced to this place now where it's so much about attack, which this article that we're talking about doesn't necessarily get into it. But I think one of the differences 30 years ago is that the culture war actually did start off as a little bit more protectionist, right? Folks trying to defend their turf. Uh, now it is much more aggressive, much more about attacking the, the folks who are uh, on the other side. Uh, and so that that creates a need and an opportunity for a community of people who will stand up and call for peace and demand that the attacks, uh, you know, stop and, and really make efforts to protect folks on either side of the ideological divide from the folks on the other side. And that, and that might be an opportunity uh, to organize it. It's a conversation that we should have more. Uh, not just here on the podcast, but I think in, in the broader context and broader community, we need to be having this uh, conversation about how we do uh, mobilize the middle, because it, it may just be uh, the the best hope for a continuation of a functional uh, democracy. Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point about what it means to be moderate. I think a lot of people think being moderate is just 
finding your place in the squishy middle middle to avoid, you know, any conflict. And I think that's wrong. I think it's more of a posture. It's not necessarily a stance because moderates can disagree vehemently on certain things. It's it's about a posture of humility and thoughtfulness. Um, It's about understanding that you've been wrong before and that you could be wrong again and that you want to make sure that you get this right rather than being strident. So uh, I would hope even though someone's moderate, they would be very clear on the positions they take. It should never be about just saying, hey, well, this is the middle ground and this is what I should go with. Sometimes the middle ground is just as wrong as anything else. So uh, just something to think about. We will be back in a second with the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Again, it's Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend uh, Christopher Butler. If you guys are anything like I used to be, uh, you probably spend some time thinking about how great and perfect this country would be if your party and ideological tribe controlled everything. If they could function without any obstruction from, from the McConnells and Pelosi's of the world, if they could just implement all the policy prescriptions that our team has so thoughtfully and carefully designed in their infinite wisdom and everlasting benevolence towards mankind. If, if there was if, the, if there is indeed a just God controlling the cosmos with pop, with uh, providence and power over all things, then surely the arc of history will bend towards your party's agenda and however you're choosing to define justice at that moment. Now, Chris, while I completely understand that people are sick of mindless obstruction impasse and the inability or unwillingness of our Congress to get some major things done, I'm I'm with y'all on that, too. And I've said that several times. Let me poke some holes in the fantasy that I just described, Uh, because the truth of the matter is, Chris, that your party may very well be better. I don't deny that. Your party may very well be caring, more thoughtful and more effective than the other party. I don't think on any given issue or at any given time that these parties are equivalent. But they may not be. They probably aren't as wise or benevolent as we make them out to be, especially when when all they have to do to convince us that the is, is to convince us that the other party is an existential threat. If that's the work that they have to do, then they're probably not as good as we think they are. Right. Uh, when they, all they have to do is prove that the other side is a, a threat, they really don't have to work so hard at demonstrating how well their ideas and their efforts work for the people. We should probably note that most of us live in cities and towns that have been controlled by one party forever. And they're far from perfect. It's interesting how a locality can be controlled by the same party for decades and will somehow, some way, find a way to blame the other party for everything that's bad in the world, including what's happening next door and down the street. Well, Chris, I've long said that the best case scenario is that we would have at least two strong parties, uh, party two parties that are fighting for the votes of every good faith constituency. I don't trust either party enough to have them run everything. I would like there to, there to be a fight for that, for that type of support. That's just the way, it, just where I come from. 
when you have two strong parties that are working in good faith, it forces them to work and sharpen their ideas rather than simply leaning on and pointing out the obvious problems with the other party. And it should also move us away from people assuming that an idea is right or wrong based on which party is presenting it. And we just talked about that with the COVID origin conversation. We should want both parties to stay on their toes and to be strong. And I may have said this before, Chris, but I do think that Donald Trump made both parties worse. And here's 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 what I mean when I say that. On the one side, too many Republicans became spineless sycophants once it was clear that he controlled the Republican base. You saw people saying all this stuff about him. And then when they realized that the people in the base liked him, they changed their tune very quickly. From what I can tell, they many did it out of fear and the naked self-interest of wanting to get reelected at all costs. And then you had groups like the Reformacons, the reform conservatives who were actually coming up with innovative policy solutions that fell off because playing along with Trump became the order of the day. And so they couldn't get a word in. Now, on the other side, Chris, I think that too many Democrats at all levels realized that they could blame all their failures on Trump and a large part of the country would uncritically give them a pass in doing that. And I have very little tolerance for mayors and local officials blaming people and parties outside of their jurisdiction for their problems. But this is exactly what happened when Trump came in. In fact, as you know, well, as you know, very well, Chris, a lot of people were mad at the end campaign for not giving the Democrats a pass during the Trump administration, during the Trump years. The idea was that Trump was so bad that critiquing Democrats was counterproductive. And I've talked ad nauseum about how misguided and shallow that contention is. I'm not going to get into it today. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that Trump made American politics less about ideas, less about the work and less about good faith and more about defenses, excuses and opposition centered politics. Now, he didn't I want to be clear. He didn't create the issue. He, he, he didn't start the problem. But based on his tone and posture, he advanced that trend in very significant ways. The parties are at their worst when they're not forced to focus on good ideas and good actions and they're not being held accountable for their failures and bad behavior. And because we got into this defensive politics, this defensive position, because we got into this uh, opposition centered politics, we didn't force them to do any of those things on both sides. The climate that Trump perpetuated gave both sides more reason to lean into the brain dead politics of tribalism. Again, the parties are at their best when they have to compete. And this is really about competition. I say I want two strong parties because I want two parties that can compete for people's votes in a strong and innovative ways. And they usually don't do that. They usually aren't going to get better if we don't provide them with the right incentives. I don't believe that they usually do that based on their own devices. I think the people at the top are happy being lazy and complacent or just serving those with money who are actually paying attention or those serving those on the extremes unless we give them different incentives. Ideally, I think that the Christian relationship with a party should should almost be the opposite of a marriage, Chris. I think political parties want an exclusive and lifetime commitment and covenant with their voters. But I think Christians need to tell them that we're just not in love with you like that. That you're probably going to be under a constant threat of abandonment unless you do what you say you're going to do and protect the people. I think we should say, hey, this relationship just isn't that kind of relationship. I'm not an exclusive type of political citizen. Go ahead, Chris. What are your thoughts on on this idea of two strong political parties? I mean, I, I think that you're onto something great. Uh, I don't know if people heard me. Uh, I was trying to be quiet as Justin was talking, but I, I come out of a black church tradition, so I'm <laughs> preaching. Um, because, I mean, you lay it out so well. 
this is important to the functioning of our democracy. And the other reason for that, other than the, the fact of, of competition, is actual uh, production in the government. When we have these two uh, entrenched and unaccountable parties, where it becomes uh, sufficient for an elected official to basically say, I'm right about everything, my party is right about everything, and everything would be great if we were in charge of everything. But the other guy stopped us from doing what we need to do, and so that's why nothing happened. Right. That is the thing that frustrates me the most is because I know that nothing happening is never nothing happening. Right. Because government can get stuck, but the economy is not going to get stuck. It's going to keep moving in some direction, uh, you know, on issues like education. Justin, you and I both have uh, small kids and they don't get stuck. They get a year older every year no matter if government does something to fix or change education or not, those kids keep getting older and older and older. Life doesn't get stuck. Government can. Um, and so when government gets stuck, what happens is that the folks on folks on the least, on the bottom of our uh, society with the least amount of resources, the re least amount of power, uh, they get the short end of the stick. They continue to fall further and further behind. Uh, they continue to be harmed, oppressed, pushed aside, uh, lacking the help and the support that they need. And the only thing that the the elected official has to say to them is blame the other guy, which, in my view, is insufficient. Uh, we have to look at the, the, the issues, the problems, the challenges that we have, especially uh, at a moment like this where... Uh, the world is changing so much. I, I read somewhere recently that we will probably experience uh, in the next 10 years more technology advancements than we've experienced in the last 50 years. Uh, so life is not going to stop moving. Life is going to continue to move. And if government is not moving and active and actually doing stuff, people are getting hurt. People are being harmed. People are being left behind. And that's a direct result of the unwillingness and the inability of folks to sort of work together. And, and that is because it has become sufficient for them to just not do anything and just go back home and blame the other guy. Uh, and so this actually connects back to the, the last conversation that we were having. Uh, I think that it's a great place for Christians right now, especially uh, in campaign type Christians, to focus a little bit of our conversation and attention, because the, the, the great thing about elections is that you you don't need uh, super majorities to win elections um, because you have opportunity to build coalitions uh, and you don't have to hold sway for uh, an, an undetermined and infinite amount of time. Uh, elections, one of the things I like about elections is that they come in cycles uh, they are time limited, and the the group that wins on on that day is the is the group that wins the election. I mean, uh, if if you're a a Trump supporter listening to this, and, and even if you're not, like you you can look at the last presidential election and imagine that man, if you let if you if that election could play out and go further for about three additional months, maybe the outcome is different. Um, and so, you know, elections pre present some some interesting opportunities. Uh, and so, but the only way you leverage the power of that is to become this sort of independent thinking uh, person in elections. And this doesn't mean that you can't identify uh, with a party or, or be a member of a party. Um, but the thing that actually makes our parties strong is actually not our ability to criticize the other side. It's actually the ability to critique ourselves, to ask questions internally, uh, and to challenge the things that we're doing uh, inside of our own group. Uh, that is what strengthens the party. So um, I think it's really important that we have two strong parties, at least two strong parties. Uh, and I think, again, that, that there's such a rich opportunity for us uh, to begin to affect change 
uh, in some of these uh, in some of these areas that that we that we're talking about, especially today. But I think we talk about it a lot on this podcast. Yeah, I think all the Christians listening to this episode should say, look in the mirror and say, or look at your political party and say, I just don't love you like that. It's not me. It's you. And I'll be honest with you, Chris. I'm just not at all invested in either side winning just to win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel good. Oh, a Democrat won in Arkansas somewhere. Well, who are they? What are they proposing? I don't care. I don't care that you won just because you're in, in, in a certain party. Could care less. I'm interested in good policy and constructive messaging that's helping the people, that's helping society. That's what we should be about. And anything else, you need to get that divorce. You need to get that separation. Separate your identity from your political affiliation and your party. And I'm going to leave y'all with that. As usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ, Ann Camp. Until next time. Kingdom, kingdom. Oh Lord, I said King.